Jesus teaching about divorce. This is a harder and harder sermon to preach as the culture becomes more permissive and liberal, right? 20 years ago, you could have preached this sermon and everybody would have said amen and now you preach it and they say, oh me. But we don't lower the standards because what our culture is doing, we have to maintain the standard that God has taught and we're going to try to discern that this morning as we work our way through Matthew chapter or Mark chapter 10 verses 1 through 12 let's pray together father thank you for this passage thank you for the subject of marriage and divorce you give us your heart and your intentions for us and the standard by which you expect us to live and we're grateful that you have revealed yourself to us that you haven't left us to wonder about what you think about any given subject. You've made your will clear in Holy Scripture, and we simply pray for the ability and the strength and the will to obey what you've taught. We know that sometimes obedience is difficult, and it makes us want to disobey and makes us want to compromise, but we pray you'll not let us do that. We ask for your forgiveness when we do, when we step out of line, when we lower the standard either in our thinking or in our behavior. We pray you'll forgive us and cleanse us as you say you will from all unrighteousness when we confess our sins to you. So we lift up today those things in our lives that are not consistent with your will and we pray that you would align us Realign us to be in conformity to your perfect, righteous desires. And especially in this area we call divorce and marriage. And so help me to explain and unfold the text as you give me the ability to interpret and to teach, Lord. Help me to do this with care and being careful to represent what you've taught accurately. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Mark chapter 10, if you'll follow along in your copy of the scripture, it says, In rising up, he went from there to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan, and crowds gathered around him again. And according to his custom, he once more began to teach them. And some Pharisees came up to him to test him and began to question him whether it was lawful for a man to divorce his wife. And he answered and said to them, What did Moses command? And they said, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. But Jesus said to them, Because of the hardness of your heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this cause, a man shall leave his father and mother, and the two shall become one flesh. Consequently, they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. And in the house, the disciples began questioning him about this again. And he said to them, Whoever divorces his wife and marries another who commit, woman commits adultery against her 
And if she herself divorces her husband and marries another man, she is committing adultery. Now, there's a parallel passage we're going to look at in Matthew chapter 19 that gives us a little bit more information than Mark does. It's important to have that information because a rule of thumb is this. Anything you want to know about what I think, you need to know all I've said about what I think. Right? That's true of you, too. If I said, uh, I heard Dan Hoisington say something the other day about any given topic, and I say, that's exactly everything he thinks about it. No, Dan may think a lot of things about that topic. I need to know everything Dan has said in order to know what Dan thinks. Right, Dan? Amen? Okay. Well, let us do God the same courtesy. You don't know what God thinks on any given subject until you've heard everything he said about that subject. And we're not going to be able to cover it all this morning in the short time we have. So there'll be some things that are left unaddressed, unspoken because of just the lack of time. So don't go away thinking you know exactly what I think on the subject of marriage and divorce because I'm not going to be able to tell you everything I think on marriage and divorce in this one sermon. Um, And I won't be able to cover all the ground that God has talked about in this one sermon. But to give us some context, what Scripture has said about divorce and marriage, Deuteronomy chapter 21, verse 10 through 14. When you go out to battle against your enemies, and the Lord your God delivers them into your hands, and you take them away captive, and see among the captives a beautiful woman, and have a desire for her, and would take her as a wife of yourself, then you shall bring her home to your house, and shall... Shave her head and shall trim her nails. She shall also remove the clothes of her captivity and shall remain in your house and mourn her father and mother a full month. And after that you may go into her and be her husband and she shall be your wife. And it shall be if you are not pleased with her, then you shall let her go wherever she wishes. But you shall certainly not sell her for money. You shall not mistreat her because you have humbled her. If a man has two wives, the one loved and the other unloved, both loved and the unloved have borne him sons. If the firstborn son belongs to the unloved, then it shall be in the day he wills what he has to, is to his two sons. He cannot make the son of the loved the firstborn before the son of the unloved who is the firstborn. But he shall acknowledge the firstborn, the son of the unloved, by giving him a double portion of all that he has, for he is in the beginning of his strength. To him belongs the right of the firstborn. Now what you'll notice in this chapter is God is dealing with a situation where there's polygamy. Now, God doesn't approve of polygamy, but when people get into situations like polygamy, then he has to address what should be done in those instances. Now, the Bible clearly says that a man shall leave his father and the mother, and the two shall become one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 24. Now, the reason I bring this up about polygamy is because there are circumstances in which God addresses a situation that is not His will. God will address a situation that is not His will. So He addresses polygamy, even though polygamy is not His will. He addresses divorce in a certain, certain way. When Moses talks about giving them a certificate of divorce, when divorce is not His will. So the fact that the Bible addresses a subject doesn't mean the Bible approves of a subject. Does that make sense? The Bible doesn't approve of polygamy, but it addresses the circumstance if 
a person should find themselves in that circumstance. But those circumstances are circumstances of disobedience. They're not circumstances that are conforming to the will of God. So there are exceptions to a situation like, for example, the hardness of heart that is going to be addressed in Matthew chapter 19. And we'll talk about that a little bit later. But look at Deuteronomy chapter 24. When a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that he, she finds no favor in his eyes because he's found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out from his house, and she leaves his house and goes and becomes another man's wife, and if the latter husband turns against her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter husband dies who took her to be his wife, then the former husband who sent her away is not allowed to take her again to be his wife." Let me give you the situation here. Let's say that Bill marries Sally, and Bill doesn't like Sally anymore, and so he writes her a certificate of divorce, and now Sally marries another man. And she divorces that man, or he divorces her. Now Sally's available again, but not to the original husband. And the reason God forbids that is because people would just simply divorce and then try to remarry again and again and again, thinking, you know, uh, it didn't work the first time, maybe we'll try it a second time. Now, you can do that if you remain unmarried, but if you've been married, you can't go back to the first partner. Now, continue to read in verse 24, chapter 24. When a man takes a new wife, he shall not go out with the army, nor be charged with any duty. He shall be free at home for one year and shall, be, and shall give happiness to his wife whom he has taken. I like that. Wouldn't you like being off one year and you get married and everybody takes care of you? So here are passages on the subject of divorce. And we wanted to look at Malachi. Look at Malachi chapter 2. Malachi is the last prophet in the Old Testament. The last book of the Old Testament. And it's after the exile and the people have returned to is to Jerusalem and Malachi is reinstituting the standards that God had set from the beginning because they went into uh, exile because of their disobedience and idolatry and they want to make sure that they have God's standard understood so they don't commit the same sins and go into exile again. So in Malachi chapter 2 verse 14 it says, Yet you say for this reason, for what reason? Because the Lord has been a witness between you and the wife of your youth against whom you have dealt treacherously, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. But not one has done so who has a remnant of the Spirit. And what did that one do while he was seeking a godly offspring? Take heed then to your spirit and let no one deal treacherously against the wife of your youth. For I hate divorce, says the Lord, the God of Israel. And him who covers his garment with, with wrong, says the Lord of hosts, so take heed to your spirit that you do not deal treacherously. You have wearied the Lord with your words, yet you say, how have we wearied him? And that you say, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord. And he delights in them. Or where is the God of justice? So in Malachi, we hear that God hates divorce. Now, that's important to understand because the context of chapter 10 is with regard to a debate that was going on between two schools of thought at the time of Jesus' ministry, the school of Hillel 
and the school of Shammai. These were two rabbis, one liberal, the other conservative. Shammai was conservative. Hillel was liberal. Hillel said, you can divorce your wife for any cause. She can burn your bagel and you can divorce her. Very, very liberal, very wide open. Uh, any, everything and anything was irreconcilable differences. So he said you can divorce your wife for any reason. And Shammai said you can't divorce your wife. There are no exceptions to, for divorce. And they want to take and figure out where Jesus sits. Does he sit in the school of Hillel or Shammai? Now, being that they're trying to test him, whichever one he picks, they're going to use it against him. If he picks Hillel, they're going to say, look how liberal he is. You can't trust him. He plays fast and loose with Scripture. If, they pick, if he picks Shammai, he's going to say, look, they're going to say, look, Jesus gives no exceptions to divorce. And so Jesus doesn't pick either school. He doesn't pick Hillel or Shammai. He picks God. That's a pretty good pick. I recommend it. Listen to the context again. Rising up, he went from there to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan, and crowds gathered around him again. And according to his custom, he once more began to teach them. And some of the Pharisees came up testing him. Now, the Pharisees are more in line with the school of Shammai because they're conservatives, and the Sadducees are more in line with the school of Hillel because they're liberal. And they began to question him whether it was lawful for a man to divorce his wife. Now, Matthew says, for any reason... So Matthew adds that, that uh, Mark leaves off. So they're appealing to, do you agree with Hillel, this idea that you can divorce your wife for any reason? And he answered, what did Moses command you? So God, Jesus goes right back to Scripture. He doesn't, he doesn't quote this rabbi or that rabbi. He doesn't reference this rabbi or that rabbi. He says, what did Moses say? Now they take and they, t- they, they, they draw from something Moses said but it's something Moses said at a time when people's hearts were hardened and it wasn't the original standard, so God, or Jesus, reminds them of the original standard. Listen to this. What did Moses write? And they say, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. They're pulling out of context what Moses allowed in the context of a hardened heart and rebellious spirit but it isn't God's ideal standard. And they're drawing off of his permissive will as opposed to his perfect will, and they're using his permissive will as the standard of his perfect will. I'll explain more about that in a moment. But they're doing a sleight of hand, is what I'm saying in verse 4. But Jesus said to them, because of the hardness of your heart, he wrote this commandment. He's calling them to task. You've just lifted a quote out of, out of Moses' writings that has to do with the hardness of heart, but you're not recognizing the context. But from the beginning, verse 6, of creation, God made them male and female. For this cause a man shall leave his father and mother, and the two shall become one flesh. Consequently, they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, what? Let no man separate. Now turn to Matthew chapter 19 so so we can gain greater context for this. Matthew chapter 19, verse 1. And it came about that when Jesus had finished these words, he departed from Galilee and came into the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. 
And great multitudes followed him, and he healed them there. And some Pharisees came to him, testing him, and saying, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? And he answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and said, For this cause a man shall leave his father and mother, and shall cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh? Consequently, they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. They said to him, Why then did Moses command to give her a certificate of divorce and send her away? And he said, Because of the hardness of your heart, Moses permitted you. Permitted is not the same thing as endorse. Permitted you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it has not been this way. So Jesus appeals to God's perfect will. They appeal to God's permissive will. And they try to make his permissive will the standard. And our culture does the very same thing. We look at the exceptions that Jesus allows for divorce and we say, well, given that he gives these exceptions, we should have more exceptions. We should allow divorce for this reason and for that reason. And in fact, now you you can divorce for irreconcilable differences. Say, what are those? Just about anything in the world that you want to bring up qualifies as irreconcilable differences. Used to be, when I was a young boy, that a person divorced his wife or wife divorced her husband. She had to prove, or he had to prove, marital unfaithfulness. But today, you can divorce without having to prove anything. You don't have, no one has the burden of proof to show that they're the innocent party or the guilty party. They just have to say, what? Irreconcilable differences and they can dissolve the marriage. Jesus says from the beginning it has not been this way. This is not God's intent. He says, what therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. Now notice the rest of Matthew 19. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. What is immorality? What's the Greek word pornea, which means sexual immorality of any sort. It's where we get the word pornography. He says, whoever divorces his wife except for immorality, it's called the exception clause. Jesus makes an exception. He does the same thing in Matthew chapter 5. Now the disciples said to him, if the relationship of the man with his wife is like this, it's better not to marry. Translation, if I've got to be that committed, I'm not sure I want to be married. And Jesus said, not all men can accept this statement. But only to those whom it has been given. Now, what does he mean by that? He means this. Some people are born and wired with the need and desire to be married. In fact, most people are. And for them, this is the standard. Some people are born with the gift of singleness and they'll never be married. And for them, this is not a standard because it doesn't apply to them because they're not married. And he he appeals to the subject of eunuchs. Now, eunuchs are men who have been castrated. Now, they're either born that way, or they make themselves that way, or other men make them that way, but they're usually made that way to be slaves or servants. Now, if that's happened to a man, he doesn't usually have the desire to be married. So you either have the gift of singleness by birth, or you have the gift of singleness by by your own doing, or you have the gift of singleness by somebody else's doing. 
But that's what a eunuch is. A eunuch is somebody who doesn't need to be or desire to be married. And then he says, For there are eunuchs who were born that way from their mother's womb, and there are eunuchs who were made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. What does that mean? Well, there are some who said, In order to serve God without any other responsibilities, I'm going to be single the rest of my life. And Paul addresses this in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. In chapter 7 of 1 Corinthians, he's dealing with a time of intense persecution. Christians are being fed to the lions. And he says, in light of this present distress, verse 26, I urge you to be as I am, meaning single. It's not a good time if you're going to die in the next few months to start a family. It's not a good good idea if you're going to die in the next few weeks to... Uh, Commit yourself to marriage when you're going to leave a widow behind and perhaps even a widower behind. So he's saying what he says in 1 Corinthians 7 in light of this present distress. Now you have to take that into context. Because if you read 1 Corinthians 7 without taking that into context, you have this impression that Paul is down on marriage, and he's not. But what he says in 1 Corinthians 7 is this. Some people have the gift of singleness, they can serve the Lord more fully because they don't have the need to take care of a wife or children and so on and so forth. But if you can't be single, then you need to marry because it's better to marry than to burn with lust. So he's addressing singleness and those who have that gift and those who don't. And he says to those who have that gift, more power to you. Dedicate that time you have being unmarried to serving the Lord And those of you who don't have the gift, then you need to get married, is what he says in 1 Corinthians 7. Now, with all that in mind, go back to Matthew chapter 19. For there are eunuchs who were born that way from their mother's womb, and there are eunuchs who were made eunuchs by men, and there are also eunuchs who made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. He who is able to accept this, let him accept it. In other words, what Jesus is saying is this. If you plan to get married, this standard is for you. And if you don't accept this standard, you shouldn't get married. He's not saying take it or leave it. He's not saying, well, if you, if you like the standard, it's your standard. And if you don't like the standard, you don't have to abide by it. He's saying this. This is the standard. Now, if you don't want to live by it, don't get married. Be single the rest of your life. And that's what his disciples were alluding to when they said, if this is the way of a relationship of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. In other words, we want a marriage that we can get out of. And Jesus says that God doesn't want you to have a marriage that you can get out of. Now, what did Jesus say in this whole passage? Well, he he brings up the subject of immorality. It's called the exception clause in verse 9. He says, except for the cause of immorality... If a man divorces his wife or a wife divorces her husband, they cause the other person to commit adultery if it isn't for the purpose of sexual immorality, if that's not the reason. So theologians have developed a a title or label that they call the exception clause. Now, many of you are familiar with the exception clause because it it has applied to you or to somebody that you've known, a relative or someone who's been divorced in your family, maybe yourself. And maybe that exception clause has been applied to your life and your your marriage. But Jesus is saying there are reasons for divorce. 
But that doesn't change God's desire for marriage. It doesn't lower God's standard for marriage. It doesn't mean that we're less committed than we were. It means that we are to be as committed as God intended throughout the marriage. And by the way, even though there's an exception to divorce, that exception doesn't require you to divorce. You understand that? When your spouse is unfaithful, it gives you permission to divorce, but it doesn't require you to divorce. You can try to work it out. In fact, I try to encourage people all the time who face this situation to work it out. Work it out. Why? Because how many times are we unfaithful to God, and yet He never leaves us nor forsakes us? God's standard is that our marriages would reflect His commitment to His people. And if He's committed to us in that kind of way, we can also be committed to one another. Now somebody says, well, what if you can't live in that situation? Then you have permission to divorce. See, there's permission to divorce. And you're not a second-class Christian if you take that liberty and that exception. In other words, if you find yourself in a marriage where your spouse is unfaithful and there's no repentance, there's no uh, change, and there's just this constant unfaithfulness, and you need to get out of the marriage, God allows you to do that. And you're not the guilty party. You're the innocent party. And if you're the innocent party, you are free to remarry. But if you're the guilty party, you're not free to remarry. So where there is biblical divorce, there can be biblical remarriage. But where there's no biblical divorce, there cannot be biblical remarriage. Now go back to Mark chapter 10. Now, this applies to me in a very personal way because I'm not unaffected by the subject of divorce. I'm not unaffected by the subject of remarriage because my mother was divorced from her first husband because of marital unfaithfulness, she was the innocent party. He was the guilty. And she came home and married my dad. And then they had me. So I'm the product of, you could say, a divorce and remarriage. So I'm not unaffected by this subject. I'm, I'm very acutely aware that if it were not for divorce and remarriage, I wouldn't be here. So does that make me a disinterested subject? Not at all. I'm very interested in the subject. In fact... I'm interested also from the standpoint of counseling with my own mother over the years. When I was studying for the ministry, my mother came to me and said, have I been living in sin all this time? I said, Mom, what do you mean? She said, well, I divorced my first husband, or he divorced her, and I married your father. Doesn't that mean I'm living in adultery? See how this affects people emotionally and and it's, it needs to be addressed because any kind of misunderstanding can send you into bondage for the rest of your life. Or any kind of misunderstanding on this subject could give you a sense of freedom that you don't deserve. Do you understand that side of it? My mother had a sense of bondage that she didn't deserve. And there are those who have been the guilty party who have a sense of freedom that they don't deserve. 
So we need to understand what God thinks about this so that we can sort it out in our own mind and understand where we stand with God in regard to this matter. And I said to my mom, no, you're not living in sin for two reasons. One, you're the innocent party. And the innocent party is allowed to remarry. Now there are some, and some people I respect very highly. One of them is Charles Stanley, pastor of First Baptist Church Atlanta. And I really admire Charles Stanley, but Charles Stanley has a view regarding the exception clause that's called the betrothal view. And the betrothal view says this, that the exception clause Jesus states is only an exception during the period of engagement or before the marriage is consummated. So if, you engage, if you're engaged to someone and you find before you consummate the marriage that they've been sexually unfaithful, you can divorce them before you marry them which sounds kind of silly, doesn't it? But there, there's a, there is a, a legitimate explanation that goes along with that that I don't have time to get into. But the point is, is that they relegate this exception to a very brief period before the consummation and only then, and therefore it can't be used after that. Now, I disagree with that position. I think Jesus is just making a broad, general Exception. He's not, he's not isolating that exception to a certain period of time. He's saying marital unfaithfulness, period, before or after the consummation of the marriage. And I said, so mom, you are not the guilty party. You're the innocent party. And the innocent party is allowed to remarry. I said, that's the first reason why you're not living in sin. The second reason you're not living in sin is this. Let's suppose you divorced and you shouldn't have and you remarried and you shouldn't have. Get everybody straight on that? You divorced and you shouldn't have. You didn't have the right to. And you remarried and didn't have the right to. You're not living in sin if you ask for forgiveness. Is this clear? Why? How do I know that? Well, because God's not going to ask you to sin again in order to repent from the sin that you committed. What would she have to do to get out of that second marriage that was illegitimate? Divorce her second husband. What does the Bible say about that? You can't do that. So there's no way to get right with God. You have to divorce your second husband in order to get right with God, but in order to get right with God, you have to be wrong with God. God doesn't put you in situations like that. So it may be the case that you've married and you shouldn't have. Remarried, I should say. And you say, well, then I'm living in sin. Not if you've asked for forgiveness. Do you understand the difference? So let's say I unlawfully divorce my wife. And then I unlawfully remarry. I commit adultery if I do that. But do I live in a state of adultery? The answer is it depends. It depends on what I do with the sin I committed. If I hold on to it and I celebrate it and I don't have any remorse over it, I don't have any regret, and I'm not convicted by it, then yes, I'm living in adultery. But if I go to God with that sin, just like if I go to God with any sin, the Bible says He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And therefore, the answer to that situation is, no, I'm not living in adultery. I'm living in a forgiven state. You see the difference? So I said, Mom, you're not guilty for two reasons. One, you're the innocent party. But number two, there's no way to rectify the second marriage without sinning. 
And God never puts you in a situation like that. See, this comes, this touches home, doesn't it? How many of you know somebody who's been divorced? Raise your hand. I'm serious. How many of you know somebody who's been divorced? Yes. Look around you. It affects everybody. So we need to know what God thinks about it. And what God thinks about it is this. If you are married to an unbeliever and your unbelieving spouse wants to leave, you're free to let them go. Now, Paul says you shouldn't be urgent to do that. There may be an opportunity for you to evangelize that unbelieving husband or unbelieving wife. You're not required to let them go. You're not required to divorce them. But if there's no way to keep the marriage together and divorce is the only option, then let them go. Especially if you've been abandoned by that unbelieving spouse. So, in my way of understanding Scripture, there are two allowances for divorce. Sexual immorality and abandonment by an unbeliever. Sexual immorality on the part of the believer or abandonment on the part of the unbeliever. God allows for those exceptions. Now, what we can't do is this. Say, well, those who take the exception are not as committed and spiritual as those who don't. You don't know that. And I've heard people say that. Well, the Bible allows you to divorce, but you don't have to. Yes, that's right. You don't have to. Well, then since you don't have to, you can't. That's not what the Bible says. And there are people who have taken advantage of that exception clause who have then been relegated to to the class of second-class Christian because they took advantage of that exception clause. And I'm here to say we need to stop treating people who've been divorced in that circumstance as second-class Christians. Any amens? But here's the other side of the coin. Because I like to go both sides and meet right in the middle where the Bible sits. Just because your spouse has been unfaithful doesn't mean you ought to pursue divorce as your first recourse. Why not? Because God has been faithful to us in the midst of our unfaithfulness, hasn't he? In fact, Paul writes, when I am faithless, he is what? Faithful. Now, what else does the Bible say about this? Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Now, just remember, chapter 7 has to do with the present distress. Look at verse 26. I think that this is good in view of the present distress. This is intense persecution going on in the early church. So 1 Corinthians 7 is not Paul's overarching view on marriage. It's his view on marriage in the midst of intense persecution. You understand that? If you just read it as a general opinion, then you've missed the point. So what does he say? Now concerning the things about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. But because of immoralities, let each man have his own wife and let each woman have her own husband. Let the husband fulfill his duty to his wife and likewise also the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise also the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Now, 
I want you to notice something. It's kind of an aside, but it's a really important aside. Chapter 7, verse 4, the first statement everybody in the first century would accept. The wife has no authority over her own body, but the husband does. That was a patriarchal culture, a male-dominated culture. Women were seen as chattel, as property, and wives were seen as the same. So for you to say the woman had no rights over her body, but her husband does, everybody would have said what? Amen. Preach it, brother. But when he says the next phrase, and neither does a man have right over his own body, but the wife does, everybody would have stood up and said, now since when? So what I want you to see from that one verse is Christianity elevated the status of women contrary to popular opinion. It was Christianity who brought women out of the bondage of male chauvinism and male uh, misogyny. It was Christianity that lifted and made women free and dignified as God originally intended, intended them to be treated. Now that's an aside, but it's a pretty important aside, isn't it, ladies? Stop depriving one another except by agreement for a time that you may devote yourselves to prayer and come together again lest Satan tempt you because of your lack of self-control. But this I say by way of concession, not a command. Yet I wish that all men were even as I. However, each man has his own gift from God. In other words, some have the gift of singleness, some have the gift of marriage. One in this manner, one another in that. But I say to the unmarried and to the widows that it is good for them if they remain, even as I. Why? Because he's down on marriage. No, because of the present distress. But if they do not have self-control, let them marry, for it is better to marry than to burn. But to the married I give this instruction, not I, but the Lord, that the wife should not leave her husband. But if she does leave, let her remain unmarried, or else be reconciled to her husband. And that the husband should not send his wife away. So, so Paul is reiterating the original intent. And he allows for the exception, just like Jesus did. But to the rest I say, not the Lord, if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever, and she consents to live with him, let him not send her away. And a woman who has an unbelieving husband and he consents to live with her, let her not send her husband away. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified through his wife and the unbelieving wife is sanctified through the unbelieving husband for otherwise your children are unclean but now they are holy. Boy, there's a lot to say about verse 14. What does it mean to be sanctified through the wife? It means this, that an unbelieving husband married to a believing wife even though he's not saved, will enjoy the blessings that come to that believing wife by being married to her and remaining married to her. And vice versa. The believing husband who's married to an unbelieving wife, that unbelieving wife will receive the benefits that come from God to the believing husband by virtue of being married to him, even though it doesn't save her soul. If it saved your soul, it'd be really easy to become a Christian. Just marry a Christian and you're saved. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about the blessing that comes to Christians and therefore comes to non-Christians who are attached to those Christians. That's what he means by the the subject, the, 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 the comment, for otherwise your children are unclean, but now they are holy. 
The children also derive benefit from being in a marriage that involves the blessings that accrue to a Christian. Now this is the point in verse 15. Yet if the unbelieving one leaves, let him leave. The brother or sister is not under bondage in such cases. What does he mean, not in bondage? They're the innocent party. They're not obligated to remain unmarried. They're free to remarry. The innocent party is always free to remarry. The guilty party is not. So he says, if the unbelieving one leaves, let him leave, but the the brother or sister is not under bondage in such cases. But God has called us to peace. And then he says this, But for how do you know, O wife, whether you will save your husband, or how do you know, O husband, whether you will save your wife? In other words, don't rush into divorce. You might be able to bring them to Christ. Now there's a difference between that and missionary dating. Do you understand the difference? Missionary dating is this. I'm going to date an unbeliever so I can lead them to Christ. The Bible doesn't doesn't, uh, encourage that at all. But once you're married to an unbeliever, you ought to treat it as an opportunity to evangelize them, and they may be able to come to the Lord. You shouldn't seek a divorce just because you're married to an unbeliever. That's the point Paul's making. How do you know, O wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, O husband, whether you will save your wife? Only as the Lord has assigned to each one, as God has called each, in this manner let him walk. And thus I direct in all the churches. Was any man called while circumcised? Let him become, do not let him become uncircumcised. Has anyone been called in uncircumcision? Let him not be circumcised. Circumcision is nothing and uncircumcision is nothing, but what matters is the keeping of the commandments of God. Let each man remain in that condition in which he was called. Were you called while a slave? Do not worry about it. But if you are able to become free, rather do that. For he who was called in the Lord while a slave is the Lord's freedman, and likewise he who was called while free is, the, is Christ's slave. You were bought with a price. Do not become slaves of men. Brethren, let each man remain with God in that condition in which he was called. Now concerning virgins, I have no command of the Lord, but I give an opinion as one who by the mercy of the Lord is trustworthy. I think then that this is good in view of the present distress. There it is. That it is good for a man to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Don't seek to be released. Are you released from a wife? Don't seek one. But if you should marry, you have not sinned. And if a virgin should marry, she has not sinned. Yet such will have trouble in this life, and I am trying to spare you. But this I say, brethren, the time has been shortened so that from now on those who have wives should be as though they had none, and those who weep... See, notice what he says in verse 29. Brethren, the time has been shortened. What time? The time where you're going to be alive. It's intense persecution. People are dying and dropping all around them. So Paul says, you see, we're planning a marriage in February 22nd. You know how it is to plan a marriage? The ladies do. The husbands don't know a lot about it, but I should get some amens from the ladies. If the world were going to end February 23rd, it probably wouldn't be a good idea to plan a marriage for February 22nd. Right? Now, it wouldn't be wrong, it's probably not a good idea. That's the point Paul's making. He's not saying marriage is second rate. He's not saying marriage is second class. He's saying in light of the present distress, don't get involved in things you can't finish. 
You're going to die soon. Now, what does he say? Verse 30, And those who weep as though they did not weep, and those who rejoice as though they did not rejoice, and those who buy as though they did not possess, and those who use the world as though they did not make full use of it, for the form of this world is passing away. You're going to die pretty soon. But I want you to be free from concern. One who is unmarried is concerned about the things of is concerned about the things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord. But the one who is married is concerned about the things of the world, how he may please his wife. And his interests are divided. And the woman who is unmarried and is the virgin is concerned about the things of the Lord, that she may be holy both in body and spirit. But the one who is married is concerned about the things of the world, how she may please her husband. And this I say for your own benefit, not to put a restraint upon you, but to promote what is seemly and to secure undistracted devotion to the Lord. Undistracted devotion to the Lord. But if any man thinks he is acting unbecomingly toward his virgin, if he should be of full age, and it must be so, let him do what he wishes. He does not sin, let her marry. See, Paul's just simply saying this. If you marry, there's a standard by which you must live. In light of the present distress, I don't, I don't encourage you to get married. I don't encourage you to do anything new for that matter because you're going to die soon. And let's not start things we can't finish. So in light of the present distress, I'm encouraging you to, to, towards singleness. But if you can't remain single, go ahead and get married. You don't sin. Especially if you're lusting and you're, you're burning with passion, you need to get married. Because obviously you don't have the gift of singleness. But what he says in this context is the same thing Jesus says. It's the same thing Moses says. If you're married, stay married. And there are exceptions to that rule, but they ought to be the exception, not the rule. Right? And we live in a culture where it's the, it's the rule now. It's the rule. If you don't get along, just divorce. And, and it doesn't matter what reason. I hear people say, I don't love my husband anymore. That's not an option. What they mean is, I don't feel love for my husband anymore. Or, I don't feel love for my wife anymore. That's irrelevant. What if God didn't feel love toward us? I don't think Jesus would have ever gone to the cross. Do you think he felt love as they were nailing him to that cross? Do you think he felt it? No, he exhibited it. But I don't think he felt it. When they spat in his face and when they pulled out his beard, do you think he felt loving toward them? I don't think he felt loving, but he was loving. You see, God is committed to us and he wants us to be committed to those that we marry. And it's difficult sometimes, but it doesn't change the standard. In fact, it's no test of your commitment when everything's going well. It's no test of your commitment when everybody's health is good. It's no test of your commitment when you are well and you have money in the bank. It's a test of your commitment when your spouse is sick and needs your attention. It's a test of, of commitment when you don't have any money. It's a test of commitment when things are not going well. And when I do marital counseling, we go over the vows before the ceremony so that when they take the vows, they can do so with thoughtfulness because when you're at the front of the church and you're being a ceremony is being conducted and the 
pastor says, repeat after me, it wouldn't matter if he said supercalifragilisticexpialidocious. You'd say it because it's just part of the ceremony. So we go over the vows and I ask them, what does this mean for better or for worse? We, we, can not, we don't have to talk about the better because we all, we all know what better is. Tell me some examples of worse. And they list cancer, paralysis, loss of money, etc., etc., etc. And I said, well, for rich or for poor, in sickness and in health, for better or for worse. Are you ready to commit to sickness? Because committing to health is not, not, a, it's not, a, it's not hard. Are you ready to commit to sickness? Are you ready to commit to poverty? Because most marriages start that way. Right? Broke. Are you ready to commit to worse? Because everybody's committed to good. And I want them to think through all the possibilities. What if your wife becomes paralyzed? Will you stay with her? What if she can't cook your meals and make your bed and wash your laundry and clean your floors and keep a good house? What if she's not able because of a sickness or an illness that she's contracted? Are you going to stay married to her? What if your husband is crippled and can't hold down a job and can't make the money that you thought he was going to be able to make to make your life as comfortable as you thought it would be and now you have to go to work and you don't like it and you resent it, are you going to stay with your husband? What if he becomes unattractive because of an accident? What if she becomes malfigured because of some accident? Are you going to stay with her? You see, there's so many circumstances for which we are committing ourselves to when we take those vows. So I tell people, look, if you don't, and I will not conduct a wedding that doesn't use those vows. So I'm not one of those you know, easy to get along with pastors who says, well, write your own vows and I'll, I'll repeat them for you. I don't mind people writing their vows as long as they express the same principles that Scripture does. For better or for worse, in sickness and in health, for richer or for poor. And if you don't mean that, then don't say it. Then when you get up there and you're with the pastor and you say, I c- commit myself to you for better, but not for worse. And I commit myself to you for riches, but not for poor. And I commit myself for health, but not for sickness. At least you'd be honest. Now, if rich and poor and better and worse and well and, I mean, better and worse and uh, sickness and, and health cover the whole territory, where does I don't love him anymore fit in? fits into those categories. You see, when you don't love somebody anymore, what you mean is I don't feel love for them anymore. But the Bible would have you to love them anyway. Because love is a commandment, not a feeling. And I know from doing marital counseling for over 30 years that those 
who practice love toward those who they have lost the feeling of love, the feeling of love comes back. Let me me tell you what I mean by that. You don't feel love for somebody anymore? Start loving them in your actions. Start valuing them in your estimation as opposed to devaluing them. And you say, what do you mean by that? Well, you know what it means. What do you do with a new car when you get a new car? You wash it. You wax it. You polish it. You clean it. You show it off. You do all those things that value that car, right? And when do you stop, de- when do you stop valuing the car? First time it gets a ding. First time it uh, gets a s- scratch on the paint or a dent in the bumper. Or, you know, we start to devalue the car once it's not as attractive to us as it once was. But everything we value and we commit to valuing rises in our estimation. And we learn to feel love for those things if we just simply commit ourselves to loving them. And it's the same thing in marriage. If you don't feel love for your husband, start loving him. Even when you don't feel it, love him. And husbands, if you don't feel love for your wife, start loving her. Even when you don't feel love for her, love her. And the feelings of love will return when you start doing it. So God's standard has not changed. God hates divorce. And He always hates divorce. But He allows for it in certain circumstances where there's hardness of heart on the part of one of his spouses. Turn to Malachi. Last book in the Old Testament. Almost done. Look at chapter 2. Verse 10. Do we not all have one father? Has not one God created us? Why do we deal treacherously against each against his brother so as to profane the covenant of our fathers? Judah has dealt treacherously and an abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord which he loves and has married the daughter of a foreign God. As for the man who does this, may the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob everyone who awakes and answers or who presents an offering to the Lord of hosts. And this is another thing you do. You cover the altar of the Lord with tears, with weeping and with groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. You cry because God doesn't accept your offering. Yet you say, for what reason? Why does the Lord not accept our offering? Because you have... The Lord has been a witness against you and the wife of your youth against whom you have dealt treacherously, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. But not one has done so who is a remnant of the Spirit. And what did that one do while he was seeking a godly offspring? Take heed then to your spirit and let no one deal treacherously against the wife of your youth. For I hate divorce, says the Lord, the God of Israel, and him who covers his garment with wrong says the Lord of hosts. So take heed to your spirit that you do not deal treacherously 
Now, what's he saying? He's saying something very similar to what he says in chapter 3 about tithing. He says, you present your offerings to God and he doesn't accept them because you've been dealing treacherously with the wife of your youth. What does it mean to deal treacherously? To divorce for no biblical reason. He's not talking about people who have biblical grounds for divorce. He's talking about people who don't. You've dealt treacherously with the wife of your youth or or the husband of your youth. And therefore, the blessing of the Lord is not extended to you until you repent, until you confess that sin and ask God to forgive you. The blessing is withheld. And, and, And so you say, what does that have to do with tithing? Well, if you withhold the tithe, if you withhold what God has assigned us to give to him, then God sends a curse. Look at what verse 8 says, chapter 3. Will a man rob God, yet you are robbing me? But you say, how have we robbed you? In tithes and offerings. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, so that there may be food in my house, and test me now in this, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not open the windows of heaven and pour out on you a blessing until it overflows. Then I will rebuke the devourer for you, so that it will not destroy the fruit of the ground, nor will your vine in the field cast its grapes, says the Lord of hosts. All the nations will be, call you blessed, for you shall be a delightful land, says the Lord of hosts. Your words have been arrogant against me, says the Lord. Yet you say, what have we spoken against thee? You have said, it is in vain to serve God. And what profit is it that we have kept his charge and that we have walked in mourning before the Lord of hosts? So now we call the arrogant blessed. Not only are the doers of the wickedness built up, but they also test God and escape. What he's saying is this. They show up at the temple. They give their offering. They don't get a a response from God because they're dealing treacherously with the wife of their youth and they're not giving tithes and offerings and they wonder why God's not blessing them. And instead of saying, it's my fault, they say, it's God's fault. He has forgotten us. He's not generous. He's not kind to us. And Malachi is saying in both instances, illegitimate divorce and robbing God of tithes and offerings, that God withholds blessings not because he has forgotten to be gracious, but because no one's repenting. No one's repenting. Notice what he says about giving money. He says, bring the whole tithe into the storehouse and see that there may be food in my house and test me. Test me. See if I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out a blessing on you until it overflows. You know what he's saying? He's saying this. In the case of divorce, in the case of any sin, where you have not confessed it and you haven't repented, the lack of blessings that flows to you is not God's fault, it's ours. And if we will repent and acknowledge our sin before God, the blessings will return. But as it is, there's a barrier that that exists. You know, you know these barriers. Peter talks about it in 1 Peter. He says, if a husband doesn't treat his wife right, what will happen to his prayers? God won't hear him. What's the implication? Start treating your wife properly and God will listen to your prayers. People think, since we're in the new covenant, that there's no such thing as curses. There most certainly are. God withholds from those who are unrepentant the blessings they would have otherwise had.
Now, what's the takeaway of all this? The takeaway is this. God hasn't changed his standards. We have. And we need to return to his standards as the standard for our goals and aspirations. Because if you lower your standards, you're going to lower your results. I guarantee you, if you aim at nothing, you're sure to hit it. So I want to have my standards up here. I know I'm going to come in below them because that's me. And you know what? It's you. But if my standard's down here and I come in below them, how bad is that? My standards should be where God's standards are. And if I come up short, I'm still pretty high. But if I lower God's standards, I'm not going to achieve that either. We never achieve our highest goals. But we should strive to, amen? We should strive to. So here's my takeaway from it all. We should love those who've been divorced for legitimate or illegitimate reasons. We should encourage those who've been divorced illegitimately to repent. Ask God for forgiveness. We should encourage those who are innocent in those divorces to not be in bondage to the feelings of guilt and shame when they don't deserve them. And we should recommit ourselves to loving our wives and our husbands according to the standard that God intended when Moses gave the law to begin with, and not according to the exception that applies when there's a hardness of heart. So, be committed to your wife. Be committed to your husband. Stick through it, through thick and thin, through better for worse, for richer for poor, for sickness and in health, and God will bless you for it. Let's pray. Father, thank you for making your word available to us so that we have a record of what you believe and think about any given subject. What your expectations are, what you have commanded for us to do and to believe. Our culture all around us is not only changing the standard of divorce, but they're changing the very definition of marriage. There's no end to what will come from this. All kinds of bizarre combinations. All in the name of love. When in fact you have designed from the beginning that a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave unto his wife and the two shall become one flesh. Male and female. That's marriage. Help us to maintain that standard, even if it means we have to shut this church down. Even if it means we have to be arrested and fined and go to jail because we're not politically correct. Help us to stand in the gap with the truth and speak the truth in love, we pray in Jesus' name.